Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, whoever everybody is. This is Dr. Simon. Uh, the show is The Stories We Live By. And tonight I wanted to talk about something that's very personal to me, uh, and that is the experience I've had in the last two and a half years, almost two and a half years, uh, working as a psychologist consultant in two nursing homes. When I came to Florida in 2005, I had retired, and I discovered soon after that uh, I missed being a psychologist. And I won't talk about, you know, the contortions of I got my license down here, which was like jumping through hoops uh, and, and and putting your head in, the, in a lion's mouth, um, and how I got this particular job. But it's been an incredibly profound experience for me to work in nursing homes. Now, what I want to talk about tonight uh, are the nursing homes, uh, but the implications of what I've learned about myself and what you might learn about yourself uh, if you start to think about uh, these nursing homes and what they mean in terms of of end-of-life experience and life experience. Um, This is not an expose on nursing homes. I've worked in two. And while I think there could be a lot of improvement in the service that uh, residents get, um, the care is reasonably okay. Um, They're kept safe. Uh, I think uh, as budget cuts get worse, uh, get more severe, the amount of time a patient can wait to see a nurse or an aide to help them toilet themselves or get their medication uh, could be a lot better because the the, the number of people working is constantly being diminished. I think that the food is a scandal in the two places, Uh, one of them a little better than the other. Uh, I guess it's nutritious enough. Nobody seems to uh, starve to death. But the quality of the food, I think, leaves a lot to be desired, and I think that's also budgetary, uh, that there isn't enough money really to buy first quality meats, vegetables, etc. But overall, uh, that's not an issue. The issue are the psychological meaning of being in a nursing home and what it means for somebody who once had a vibrant life. So I want to talk about some of the existential issues involved uh, in, in what I've learned Uh, And the message I have, let me back up one second. Uh, My last couple of shows, I did a part one on the self and part two on identity. The show that I did on the self was on a Tuesday night. I guess that was a mistake uh, because the show, the part two of the show on identity, which I think has really helped if you talk, listen to part one, uh, was on a Wednesday night. That's got almost 2,000 hits. I don't know what to call it. I don't know how many people listen listen to the whole show. Part one got 60. Um, and I think you really can't fully understand part two unless you've listened to part one. So for those of you who are listening <clears throat> to my broadcast, who are going into the archive, um, uh, give a try for part one. I think it was very good in terms of self. Uh, 
So I want to talk a little bit about existential psychology and humanistic psychology and uh, some of the problems that I've, I've encountered. And let me say that in this case, uh, it's not going to be fully coherent. Um, I don't have a tidy story to tell about this. If I was doing an expose, I would, but that's not really the issue. It's the larger issues uh, that I want to talk about in terms of life and death, uh, dying, um, uh, what it means to be a person who has a vibrant life, uh, who lives, and what it means to be a non-person uh, who doesn't have a life and basically exists. And what you can learn from this if your life is one that's vibrant and you're a person or if you experience your life without even knowing it to be a non-person who's basically existing. Time to take action. Uh, so I don't own the story. Now let, let me explain that because that's an interesting topic. Uh, I've talked about it before, but I want to talk about it again to make clear what I'm talking about in this sense. Um, a student once said to me that um, she was unhappy with her relationships, particularly with boys uh, and, and with people in general, uh, and that she had been abused as a child, sexually and physically. So I asked, tell me about it. And she said, I can't talk about it. And our discussion led to some interesting uh, uh, ideas, one of which was, if you don't own your story, if you can't tell it, you're living in it. You're part of it. Now, that's an interesting concept, living in your story, because we all live in one story or another. We are the subject and object of our story, and that is a point at which we can't step out of how we see the world and see ourselves see the world. Now, let me make that clear because I'll go back to the student. Um, uh, somebody once said of psychiatry, the psychiatrist sees the world in a certain way, but he can't see how he sees the world. In other words, we're all in a box. It's like we're looking at the world through a window. And the window is framed, so we see the world through the window, but we don't see what's around the frame, what's outside the frame. We can't form a larger perspective. Now, life and development psychologically, if we're lucky through education, through questions, uh, through new relationships, for me especially, I recommend reading, we broaden the view we have, the perspective changes. So that how we saw the world at one point, uh, now we can see how we saw it because there's another view, a broader view. It's like going up a mountain. And the higher we are, the further and the wider we see. <clears throat> so my student now is living in a story that was created when she was a child. And I said to her, uh, this was in a classroom, by the way, uh, usually doesn't get that intense in a classroom, but if it does, and I can hold it so it doesn't become too personal, it really makes for a great class. So I said to her, where are you right now, physically, psychologically? She says, well, I'm in this room. Uh, you're my teacher, and students around, some of my friends. 
I said, you're not any longer a child being terrorized by the adult who terrorized you, are you? She said, no. I said, you're safe now. So that if you tell the story or tell parts of this story, you'll own it. Because you're recognizing that the platform you're standing on to tell that story is not the platform you were on or the window you were looking out when these events, terrifying, wrong, awful events happened to you. And she began to talk about the story. And when it became too personal, I suggested that she wait to talk to me or somebody, she was in therapy, she said, uh, talk to her therapist. Because if she felt safe with the therapist and she talked about the story, she'd work out the details. And what would be wonderful about it, she would see it from the outside, own the story, and no longer be terrified by the event in the same way. Because she would recognize a new self had come into existence, one that was more mature, one that had a wider perception, uh, a greater understanding than when she was a child. And she could then get on with her life and make different choices in relationships. Well, this is always an issue for me in terms of success in therapy and success in education, is to help people begin to understand and see themselves in the world in a larger platform so they can go back to the smaller one and those events that were hurting them can be owned and could be not put to rest and not forgotten, not condoned necessarily, not forgiven necessarily, but understood so that they don't determine all of your actions and your relationships at a later point in life. To me, that's the goal of what I call psychotherapy. Now, why do I tell this long story? It's because this is a story that for me, I can't get on top of or outside of. I'm in this story. Now, the fact that I can tell it uh, <laughs> gives me a little bit of distance from it. But I can't talk about my own death and dying and get on top of it because there's no way to do that. So let me talk a little bit about my experiences in the nursing home and what I've learned from the the, the the residents there, they're not, I call them patients because uh, in order for me to be paid by Medicare, I have to fill out forms that determines they are patients. And I'm going to talk about that piece of nasty horror uh, because the only way uh, that people's unhappiness in these places, not necessarily caused by the place itself, but by the very fact of being an elderly person uh, who's in a bed in a diaper and will never get out of the bed or the diaper except in very limited ways. Uh, and that unhappiness uh, is referred to as depression and some form of psychopathology and handled by psychiatry. So let me, let me start with some of the people I've met uh, and the people I work with. And by the way, if you'd like to call in, uh, I would love to hear from some of you. 646-716-7756. That's 646-716-7756. Uh, anyway, I don't work with serious with patients who have serious dementia. Um, I do 
you know, what's called therapy. A lot of it is supportive therapy. A lot of it starts out supportive and becomes insight. Some of it is fairly long-term, uh, and some of it is relatively short-term for the following reason. Both the places I work are uh, split between long-term permanent residents who are sitting in a place and lying in, in a place uh, from which they will be uh, 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 designated hospice and probably will die in the place. Um, in the last five weeks, and this has been a very, very upsetting and strong event in my life, uh, I've had five patients die, people who I've been working with now for over two years with whom I have a real affection and had a real relationship. When I say this to people, they tell me, yes, but they were in their 90s, late 80s. Uh, you had to expect it. Well, I've known many people who have had relatives who've died and knew they were going to die. They had cancer or other advanced diseases. But when the death occurs, uh, it's still real for the first time. Because when you're talking to a person who might be dying, and they're still real to you, and the relationship is real, uh, then mourning doesn't take place. There's no loss. Uh, you worry about the death. But when it occurs, death has an immediacy. It has a power uh, that has to be dealt with, and it doesn't take place until the person dies. So that when people tell me that these patients of mine, uh, some of my really nice relationships in my life, over the years, by the way, uh, some of the best relationships I've had in my life, and I'm lucky to have some personal relationships that have been quite wonderful, uh, uh, but with the, uh, as people who are not part of my social life or my personal life as family, uh, I've had some wonderful relationships, uh, and when they end, they're, 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 there's a loss, and there's something that has to be dealt with. So that they can tell me that these people uh, will be I would have, should have expected it, and I knew when they were starting to die. Uh, I've learned that you can begin to tell when somebody has decided enough is enough. Um, is that the loss is still there? Because these were real people. So I don't work with dementia patients, mild dementia, yes, uh, because that could still mean there's a real person that I can deal with cognitively, intellectually, and emotionally. Uh, but most of it is, is supportive, and a lot of it becomes insight work. Uh, I'm, not, I'm psychoanalytically trained to a degree, but I have my own theory that contains pieces of psychoanalysis uh, and other forms of therapy, cognitive therapy, cognitive effective therapy. Uh, I try to be socially aware as a therapist at the same time. Uh, I believe in the history of the patient uh, or the client or whoever it is I'm working with, to bring in a greater understanding of the story that I'm interacting with. Um, and, and this is what I've learned from many of these individuals. <clears throat> they had <clears throat> long-term relationships <clears throat> that in many cases are over. Uh, there's something remarkably uh, powerful in somebody telling me about a wife or a husband that they've been involved with and, and loved and been loved by for 50 years, 55 years, 60 years, 65 years. Uh, the longest of the people I've worked with had a relationship, a marriage, a good marriage that went 67 years. <clears throat> um, I'm going to be married in June 50 years. So I really can fully appreciate 
what happens to your life when you've lived with somebody and built your life with somebody for uh, half a century or 60 years or close to 70 years, and it's over. Uh, Nobody can tell you, well, just look around and start again, particularly if you're in your late 80s or in your 90s. Many of these individuals had many friends, and the friends are all gone. Siblings, uh, in many cases, are gone. So that the loss of the really important people in their lives has been enormous. And they're now cut off from most social relationships, important social relationships, uh, except for people who have been hired to take care of them. And the taking care of them uh, is, in many ways, a work that's demeaning for the patient or the client and for the individuals doing it. Uh, there is something uh, that has to be done in terms of changing somebody's diaper two or three times a day. Uh, but think about if your diaper had to be changed by some person um, and you had to be cleaned up once, twice, or more times a day, and how that would feel. How would that feel? Uh, very powerful stuff. Um, so, Socially, more and more of these people isolated. They can't walk. Um, they can't drive a car. They can't play golf or tennis or go out for dinner. They can't do all of the things that made life vibrant and meaningful. And this is something I've thought about, and I've thought about a lot. We talk about, well, somebody is still alive. But what's life? What's life if you think about it? A good life. Uh, I've spoken about this many times before. To me, the best life is one that's creative, where something is being created that didn't exist before, that reflects the individuality of the person who's doing the creation. But a good life is made up of activities that are enjoyable and activities that represent the challenge that need to be overcome, that problems that have to be solved, And when the problems are solved, with or without help, producing powerful feelings of satisfaction and competence, to me, that's life. So that many of these people are not really alive in the sense of living a life, they're existing. There's a tremendous difference, I think, between being alive and existing. And I have been told... And and this is part of the job that I love and and I'm rewarded by. In many of the cases I'm working with these people, I'm the only one who takes them seriously as a psychological being, as a person. Not as a body that has to be tended, not as a patient, but as a human being. And I always felt, and I've said this many times and written about it, a good teacher, a good therapist, a good doctor, doesn't see a patient, they see a person. A person who has a personality, who has needs, desires, dreams, who has emotions, uh, who's struggling still in one way or another to make life better and to live. And I see these people, if I have any opportunity to do it, as people and interact with them 
And it's been a very profound experience for me of how appreciative they are. I'm here all the time. I hear all the time, you're the only person who really hears me or listens to me. Uh, I'm not, I'll be told, I'm sorry I dump my problems on you. Uh, And I smile and I say, dump. Uh, This is what we do with each other if we care. Uh, Your friends tell you their troubles. You tell them their troubles. In fact, if you can't tell your friends your troubles and they don't listen, or your friends and the people you live with and love don't listen to your troubles, there's no relationship. You're not friends. You're, you're, You're acquaintances. You're uh, uh, in those relationships, so many of which I have where I live. How are you? Fine, great, fantastic. It's all bullshit. It wheels. It, you know, it 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 it, it um, uh, takes the squeaky wheels and puts some grease on them. It's socially appropriate in many ways, but on the other hand, it's not um, meaningful in the sense of connecting to another human being. Uh, in a way that helps you feel that you have shared a problem, that you've shared the burdens of being alive. And so I have this with many of these people, and it's been tremendously rewarding uh, for me, sometimes very painful, uh, because I can do nothing really to change the existential problems of patients. Sometimes I get a nurse. I had a patient that I cared very much for who died just this week. And every uh, week, um, the day I saw her, on Tuesday, she had rosary. <clears throat> and I made sure, every week I was there on Tuesday, that somebody came for her in time to get her ready for her rosary. And I can't tell you how she appreciated that and how wonderful it was for me to see to it that she made her rosary. She would have made it in most of the cases, in most of those weeks, without me, but The fact that I was there, and I'm Dr. Simon in this institution, and when I would ask one of the nurses or the aides to please make sure that uh, she gets to her rosary, uh, a group meeting, group rosary, um, it it meant something. It it helped move the wheels along. It helped uh, uh, generate a little energy in the machine uh, in terms of how the place uh, would meet her needs. and and so um, this is a loss for me, her death. But that was very meaningful for both of us, uh, that I added something that represented real life for her and not just existence. Uh, interestingly, <clears throat> I'm told all the time by these individuals that they're bored. And I'm going to talk a little bit about boredom because I think boredom is an existential emotion It's very important for all of us to understand, certainly for me, uh, because when I became aware of what I thought boredom really means, uh, I began to change my own life and how I live. Uh, I'm bored, says patients. There's nothing really for me to do here. And it's it's true. If you're a bright individual and an educated individual, and many of the people I work with, are bright and educated. There's very little for bright and educated people to do in these institutions. Very few meaningful conversations. And so, what does boredom mean? Boredom is related to the emotion of anxiety. 
Anxiety is a very powerful emotion declared by the, uh, <clears throat> the, the brilliance of psychiatry to be a disorder, to be tranquilized out of existence if it's very strong, uh, if, if it, it really causes discomfort. And anxiety always causes discomfort because it's supposed to. Anxiety is an emotion that says there's something I need to know. When I have anxiety, and I, as soon as I get the information that satisfies my need to know, whether I'm lying to myself or someone's lying to me, or there's just a piece of important information like a doctor's report, the anxiety goes away. Boredom is related to anxiety. And what it is, is an emotion that says, like anxiety, you're wasting your life. You're alive, and you're not living to your creative, meaningful, social, citizen potential. You're bored. How many millions of people are bored all the time? Their jobs bore them. Their relationships bore them. Uh, how many of our relationships aren't that meaningful? We're putting on a performance. <clears throat> We're in a relationship that really doesn't satisfy us and which we don't satisfy the individual with whom we're interacting and we go along and we're anxious and we're bored and these individuals are bored because they still have their minds they still have their hearts and their life for all intense purposes is over because there are none of the activities that they used to have or being provided for them that make them feel as if they're truly alive. They are existing. <clears throat> and when you're existing and you don't put a name on it and you're floating through and you're afraid, not that you're in a nursing home and the choices have run out, but that you're not living the potential that when any of us do that, any of us, we're bored. It says, go and do something meaningful so that your life isn't boring, but that it's exciting, creative, meaningful. <clears throat> These people now are locked in a situation that only death will end their, their, their boredom. And this is a tragedy. This is so sad. Um, we, we deal with their physical needs in these nursing homes, but we don't deal with the emotional and the intellectual needs. There's no one really there to do it on a full-time basis, to organize the individuals um, uh, uh, socially who can have discussion groups, who can play chess with each other, who can do all kinds of activities that they might feel more meaningful uh, than the occasional bingo game, uh, or lying in their bed and watching, oh, everybody has a television. Uh, <clears throat> more and more, I'm beginning to hate television. Uh, Newton Minow, many years ago, who was the chairman of the FCC, this goes way back, 40 years, more than that, called television a vast wasteland. Now that we have hundreds and hundreds of stations, uh, it is a bigger wasteland. Petty, mean, uh, trivial, and watch it, you become numb, you become dead, and always lurking within it is this terrible boredom, 
which says, what the hell am I sitting here and doing this, this meaningless activity? Uh, my one life is running out on me. And this is true of any age in which we're plagued with large amounts, large amounts of time in which we're bored. Uh, another issue that I deal with with these wonderful individuals that I've been working with. Um, short term, by the way, I, I, I think I will drop, pick this point up. Uh, the long-term patients uh, that I have, the long-term clients, uh, relationships, uh, the short term are usually in rehab. And many of these are the same age. Uh, they have been injured. They have broken hips. Uh, they have come because of heart attacks that they have to regain their strength before they go home. There's the terror that they won't go home. Uh, with many of these individuals, there's much more hope of being restored to meaningful life, but the anxiety uh, and, and the feeling of, of being trapped in a situation that at, when you're in your 80s, 90s, late 70s even, that it's very hard to get out of, it's hard to recover, um, so there's many of the same issues as the residents that I work with who are long-term. A lot of anxiety, a lot of boredom, and a feeling that they tell me I'm not a person anymore. I'm a non-person. And I hear this all the time, those specific words. Right? In many cases, if they're lucky, they have a spouse, children who are close by, and keep them feeling like they are a person. How are you, mom? How are you, dad? How are you, sweetheart? How powerful and important these things are to every human being in making us an identified real person. Somebody who looks at us in the face and says our name in which there's an emotional tie. How important this is, I have learned. Without it, we're as good as dead. Or what we are is a non-person who exists. Um, there has to be... <laughs> you want to do something really good in your life if you have some time. Go to one of these nursing homes and become a, a, a you know volunteer and sit and talk to the residents. Not all of them will want to talk with you, and not all of them can talk to you in a meaningful way. But all of them want to make eye contact with someone who hears them, who uses their name, who recognizes them as a person, who at least for a half hour, perhaps, ends the boredom by making them feel as if they're not only a person, but that they're living a life by interacting with another individual who cares about what they say rather than judge it for its content or become frightened by it. Which kind of brings me to the last thing I think I want to talk about today, and that is my favorite topic, uh, the bullshit that has taken over the mental health field, namely the psychiatric medical model that we're all caught in. One of the things that I have had, I can't tell you how many patients say to me is, Dr. Simon, I've lived too long. Now, that's a remarkable thing to say. 
the 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 people in rehab don't usually say that, uh, although some of them do, because they know that even if they improve somewhat, they're not getting a meaningful life back. It's going to be a life in a wheelchair or life in a bed. Uh, and more and more, the way our society runs, um, the children are involved with their children and struggling to earn a living. Uh, they would, even if they want to take care of these individuals, these seniors, most of them are seniors. Uh, some of them are people who have been injured in, in falls and in, uh, accidents, but most of them are seniors who are at the tail end of their, of their lives, of their lived lives. Um, even if they wanted to take care of them, they really couldn't, not only because of time and economic needs, of having to work long hours, of, of nobody being home during the day, uh, but because lifting somebody out of a bed and putting them on a toilet or having to diaper them and bathe them uh, is an extremely difficult task for someone to take on when they're taking care of a family. So there are really no real options for this. And I've thought about this statement um, I've lived too long. For myself, I went out today and I played a really wonderful game of golf. Came home and I've had dinner with my wife. I had a glass of wine. Uh, I had more than one glass of wine. I've discovered a really good red wine uh, for $10 a bottle that is absolutely delicious and produces all of the fine effects uh, of having a, a, a good pork chop and potatoes with a glass of good wine. Uh, it's wonderful. I haven't lived long enough. Uh, I'm doing the show tonight in addition to my day, and I love it. I'm excited doing this show. Uh, more and more people seem to be listening to the show or coming to it in archives. What I don't understand is why nobody calls in or wants to join a discussion uh, uh, with me on any of these issues. But, hey, listen, what can I do? I have no idea what's really going on. But the the interesting part of this is, for me, I've not lived long enough. And for people who are enjoying their life, uh, they have not lived long enough. I've never done a show on suicide, but people who commit suicide are convinced that they no longer have a life worth living, and they want to leave it. They also in many cases, have lived too long. Now, many of the people who have said to me they've lived too long want their life back. They don't want to die. Uh, some of them uh, uh, do want to die. Some of them are comfortable with the thought of dying. If they're deeply religious, and I've had some people who are really honestly deeply religious and believe uh, that their life has been such that they will go to heaven, uh, a, a man I work with now, uh, I work with him six or seven times. He came in in rehab uh, and went down within six weeks, said to me, it was a lovely man who had said to me, I've enjoyed my life. It's been a great life. My wife died several years ago, and I have no doubt whatsoever that when I go, I will be with her. She'll be waiting for me. Uh, and I said to him, I wish I could feel exactly as you feel. I don't, I don't believe that, but I'm so glad you do believe that, uh, and I hope you're right and I'm wrong. Uh, and we had a wonderful relationship. I saw him six or seven times. His daughter had come in. 
uh, and I was able to talk to her because she understood uh, that he was ready to go. Uh, his life, as he saw it, was over, but there was no terror in his dying because he truly was in belief that he would meet his wife. Uh, he didn't quite believe in heaven or hell. Uh, he, he wasn't Catholic. He, 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 he wasn't Christian. He was Jewish, uh, and Jews don't have heaven or hell. Uh, at least not in any explicated way in terms of the way Dante wrote the Inferno, in which there's hell and heaven and seven rings of hell. Um, uh, that's not a, a, a Jewish uh, invention, not Buddhist invention. Um, it's basically a Christian invention, and basically a Christian invention in the last three or four hundred years. Uh, before that, uh, heaven and hell were uh, uh, vague places. You, know, that you go to your maker, but whether you're not, you wake up and there is a uh, eternal golf course and a tennis court there. Uh, that's not something that uh, 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 most non-Christian. That's a, a Christian kind of a recent Christian invention. Uh, an interesting story, but one that's not all that many uh, hundreds of years old. Um, many of the patients don't want to die uh, and afraid of dying, but they have lived long enough. They say this: I, I don't have a life. I'm not a person, I'm a non-person, and uh, I've had enough. And uh, when they say this, and, and, and I should add another dimension, some of the people I work with are in pain, chronic, continual pain, 24-7, yeah, in pain, terrible arthritis, injuries, uh, things that won't heal, uh, the flesh is uh, weak, and as we get older, it gets weaker and weaker. They will say, I don't want to live this way. I want to die. When they say this to a nurse or a doctor, in comes the psychiatrist flying in. Major depressive disorder, and they're put on a, a, a cornucopia of a medical list of chemicals to dissuade them from saying this again. I've always, and I've, anybody who's known my show, rail against this idea that human emotions are anything but important indicators about how we experience our lives. They make us human. And we have turned all manner of normal emotions uh, into illnesses, to be either therapized or are cured or drugged out of existence. And boy, we can do a good job drugging our emotions out of existence and turning us into zombies, turning us into non-humans, non-persons who don't upset anybody around them by saying they want to die. Um you want to die? It's your choice to want to die. I don't like the idea of people committing suicide, and none of these people really talk about suicide. Uh, none of these people have available to them um, the means to commit suicide. Uh, there's no mechanism for medicine to help them die if they really uh, do want to die and are not going to recover from the state of pain and illness or uh, boredom that they're in. Um, and I don't know how we do that. For myself, I've been thinking a lot about this. I haven't lived 
enough. I haven't lived long enough. But I don't want to ever be in a position where I say I've lived too long. And the borderline between the two boys and girls is often a very quick drop, a quick event, a fall, an accident, the diagnosis of a dread illness, cancer, heart disease. Um, Suddenly you go from person to non-person, from living to existence, and what do you do? How do you plan for this? We don't have anything in our society that allows us to even talk about this. I'm going to watch the statistics for this show very carefully. For me, this is one of the best shows and one of the best discussions with myself and whoever else might be listening that I've ever done. We're not allowed to say these things. How do we plan for our non-existence? How do we plan for the years of boredom? How do we plan for those days, that day when we will go from person to non-person, and that if we say we're in pain, we're causing trouble, send in the psychologist or send in the psychiatrist, write a prescription for some powerful antipsychotic medication, tranquilizers, antidepressants, give them all. Put them on the cornucopia. Raise the drug profits, the profits of the drug companies. It's wrong. It's wrong. These are still human beings, and however they feel themselves to be non-persons, they have to be treated as full persons, full human beings. And however their life is in existence, I think it's our obligation to try and make their lives feel as if it's still lived and worth living. Not easy, but that's how I feel. Uh, I don't like psychiatry and the medical model, and this has nothing to do with the psychiatrists themselves. Uh, There are people I care about. Um, I have a relative who's one. Uh, It's not a personal issue. It's an issue related to the institution of psychiatry that now dominates the entire field of human relations uh, as some kind of a dread religion, a secular religion that says these feelings are wrong, they're pathological, they represent a disorder or an illness, and they have to be treated, and almost always now it's treated with uh, pharmacology, with prescriptions that shut the individual down and hasten their death. Well, maybe that could be a good thing. Maybe it's a kind of euthanasia, but that's not what it's intended to do, and so therefore it remains wrong. So, I've been on the air now long enough, about 40, almost 45 minutes. I'm getting tired. Uh, It's time for my dessert. If anybody would like to call in, let me put the chat on. Maybe somebody would yeah, I launch this small chat. What, what, let's see what's going on here. Anyway, if nobody wants to talk with me, uh, nobody wants to write me, 
I have to really find out more about Flash Chat and all of this stuff. Um, okay. Then I will have a new show next week. Next week I'm going to talk about, again, uh, interesting, the history of psychiatry. A wonderful article that appeared in the New York Times uh, about uh, the rise of psychiatry. Before they were called psychiatrists, they were called mad doctors. Um, and the work of, of a French philosopher by the name of Michel Foucault, uh, one of the first early postmodern philosophers, somebody whose work I love very much. Uh, and uh, again, some of the historical diagnoses that have been made. For example, uh, drapedomania. Drapedomania was the illness that caused slaves to run away from their masters. How's that one, boys and girls? Okay, talk to you next week, Wednesday at 8, if all is well. And I'm going to end this episode right now.